if love is uncontrolling, if God is uncontrolling, um, why do we pray? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I try to remind everyone that prayer has a lot of dimensions, but I assume when people ask that question, they have in mind petitionary prayer, that is asking God to do something in our lives or in the world to maybe heal or stop the coronavirus or whatever. Um, so that's, I think, a real legitimate concern. And I like to begin answering it by looking at uh, a couple of standard ways, at least common ways, that people think about God and God's action and God's power, and then and show why those ways don't make a lot of sense before offering what I think is an actual constructive answer. So first way, uh, we'll call it the God of John Calvin. This God has predetermined and foreknown everything that's going to happen from the foundation of the world, which means that our prayers are actually in some way predestined by God. and All the results are already predestined and foreknown. And I think if you have that view of God's power and relation to time, it's it's really hard to get motivated to pray. At least it is for me if I had that view. <laughs> uh, I might pray just out of sheer obedience and turn off my brain, not thinking, you know, not trying to think about what real difference this prayer is making. But I don't think I could pray with uh, full rational uh, honesty if I had that view of God. Most people don't have John Calvin's God in mind. I think most people have a God in mind who could single-handedly fix stuff, and maybe sometimes does in their mind, uh, at least in their way of thinking. Uh, and so, therefore, prayer becomes asking this God who could just up and single-handedly fix something to do so. Um, the problem, I think, with that view is if you combine the view that God can single-handedly fix things with the idea that God is perfectly loving, loves everyone all the time, then one wonders why a perfectly loving God would have to wait around for us to ask God to do something that's perfectly loving. Um, you know, let's say you want to, you're asking for healing from the coronavirus. You're suffering from incredible symptoms and um, you're, you want God to heal you. If God can just up and do that, boom, single-handedly, then why would a God like that, if that God really loves you, wait around for you to ask as if, you know, God's not going to get off his butt and do anything unless we beg or plead or, you know, punch him in the backside or something. Um, that view of God, I think, brings up all kinds of problems, not in terms of God's power directly, but in terms of a loving God. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations here is to say, um, suppose my daughter is in the middle of a lake and she's starting to drown, but I don't hear her call out for help. Am I going to stand on the dock and say, you know, hey, she's not asking for help here. If I can single-handedly jump in and rescue her, I'm going to do that even if she doesn't ask me because I know it's for her good. And so that second view of God who can single-handedly get things done but has to somehow be cajoled or prodded into doing something uh, doesn't seem to fit well with a God of perfect love. Now, my view says God can't single-handedly fix things, can't single-handedly heal someone from the symptoms of the coronavirus. 
And so one might wonder, as you've already asked, why even pray to this God? God can't fix it single-handedly. Well, uh, my view affirms two additional ideas that I don't always talk about. The first idea is that God is a relational God. And that means that God is really affected by what we do, everything we do, including our spoken words of prayer. The second idea is that we live in an interrelated universe, and the actions of one individual has real influence on others, not only conscious beings, but all entities and reality. Uh, So in an interrelated universe in which you've got a God who is affected by our prayers and others and entities and circumstances that are affected by what we do, when we pray new possibilities, new opportunities for God to act might open up. There might be new things for God to do to work in any situation. It doesn't mean that our prayer somehow turbocharge God and make it so that God could single-handedly fix the person suffering from the coronavirus. But it does mean that because we prayed, new things might become available. In fact, because of the psychosomatic um, um, psychosomatic um, aspect of our being, the mind-body relationship, our minds can not only affect our bodies and our cells, organs, etc., Uh, But our minds and actions can also affect others' bodies and cells. So prayer in this mode can make a real difference, but it doesn't somehow make it so that God can single-handedly heal people and fix things. That's a long answer. (laughs) I I would expect no less. (laughs) So if you don't mind me asking you, put you on the spot, what has been an example of the kinds of prayers that you have prayed in the last week, let's say, since um, all this stuff is kind of broken upon us regarding the virus. Yeah. You know, I've not actually encountered anybody who's dealing with the illness personally. You know, obviously I know theoretically of people who are dealing with those things. My primary prayers have been prayers of trying to understand and figure out what I might do in response to the prayer, um, in response to the virus, I mean. Uh, So, uh, you know, that means trying to figure out how I'm going to spend my days, where I'm going to be, what precautions I ought to take, etc. I find that I tend not to pray for someone across the world who I've never heard of before. Now, theoretically, my what I'm talking about prayer here could actually make a difference because I think God is omnipresent. But I tend to think more locally, in part because I think my actions have more local uh, consequences. Um, but let's just let's assume, let's say that I got a call, and uh, someone was here in a really tough situation because of the coronavirus, and they wanted me to come to their house and pray for them. Now, you know, obviously, one of the things I would do is get prepared, <laughs> wear a mask or something. I'm not exactly sure what's the proper thing. But suppose I, w- I showed up, went into their room, and they're laying in the bed. What kind of prayer would I pray? Mm-hmm. Um, my prayer usually takes three or four kind of steps. The first step is to acknowledge what seems to be the case. 
So I would, you know, bow my head, close my eyes, and I would say, God, you know, I'm here with, I'll say it's Tim. I'm here with Tim, and Tim is really feeling rotten because of what seems to be the coronavirus. And we want to begin by acknowledging his pain and his suffering. Now, notice that when I'm praying, because I think God is relational, God is affected, but also Tim is relational. All of a sudden, my actions and words are are could theoretically, I think in actuality, begin having an effect on Tim's mind and body. And some people, just having someone acknowledge their pain and suffering is a really important turning point. So I begin my prayer acknowledging what seems to be the situation. Secondly, I say, God, I believe you're already working as, as much as possible in Tim's life at this moment. We're not begging you to start the healing action, but you want to heal, Tim. You want to work in whatever way possible, from the smallest levels of his body to the top. Now, in doing that, I'm not actually asking God to do something. I'm kind of acknowledging this sort of view I have of God. But again, it's now uh, placing some ideas in Tim's head, and I think even perhaps influencing his body somehow. The third thing I say, I'll say something like this. God, we know that you're already working to heal Tim, but you're also facing factors, forces, and opposition to your healing power. Now, I'm introducing there the possibility that God can't single-handedly fix things, which I think is super important given my theology and a lot of other things. But I'm introducing that in Tim's head Now, you might think, well, that's a bad strategy. You want Tim to think God can do anything, and now you're dampening his hopes. But what I really want is for Tim to have a realistic view of God's power, because someone else may have come and prayed with Tim and said God could do anything, and and Tim is still sitting in that bed hurting. So I want to acknowledge that God of love is working, but also there's real opposition. And then the fourth step of my prayer does something like this. It says, God, Give Tim and me and the physicians and our friends and family insights and how we might cooperate with your healing action in his life. That might be medical, that might be emotional, that might be eating and sleeping well. There's all kinds of things we might do to cooperate with your healing action. And so in that kind of way, I'm saying things that I think affect God, affect Tim, but I'm not setting Tim up to think that God can ju- is punishing him for getting, you know, because he's got the virus or God can single-handedly fix it. But also it's not that God is, you know, watching Tim from a distance eating popcorn saying, oh, tough luck for him. I'm not doing anything about it. Um, that's the kind of approach I take. What is your response then when people push back with respect to that last point? There's, there's several questions I want to ask, but one of them is, with respect to the last point, when you're praying that um, that we'd be in cooperation, that we would choose to partner, if that's the right language, what do you imagine God is doing from his or her or its side to partner with this? How, what does that look like? Is that a, I don't know if that's a good question or not. Um, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to speak to the gap that then exists. Because people just assume God's doing all the work. Doing something. Yeah. Um, 
Well, one of the things I want to do is talk about partnering at different levels. So it could be that Tim is consciously doing everything he knows to do to partner with God's work to heal. He's drinking extra fluids. He's consulting a physician. He's getting his rest. He's quarantining himself, except me, who's praying with him at the time. But you get the idea. But it could be the case that his body is facing forces and factors that make it the case that his body can't respond in the way that he wants and I think God wants. So God seeking cooperation or collaboration or tandem work here is not just about Tim's conscious mind saying yes to God. There's other aspects of Tim's body that he can't control that also need to cooperate or be conducive to the kind of healing work God wants to do. And so you're saying that it's possible. By the way, can you hear me? Because my mic went back to the computer. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're saying in that respect, then God um, as spirit or as something, you know, beyond physical is interacting with the cells in the body in some way. Is it too simplistic to say that, that it's looking for cells that have the willingness to cooperate with its healing power? Yeah, I think so. You know, when, when we talk about the capacity for cells to cooperate, uh, there's it's hard for us to find the right kind of language, I think, because I at least don't believe cells are conscious beings that can consciously deci- decide whether or not to cooperate with God's healing. On the other hand, I don't think we're robots or computers that have no uh, responsiveness to God's spirit, even at the smallest levels. So uh, maybe decide is not the right word, but uh, the cells have to respond. And in those cases in which we don't think there's even the capacity for responsiveness, then I would say things like the conditions of that person's body are not aligned or not conducive to the kind of work God wants to do. Very good. How do you explain, unpack, talk about miracles? Um, well, I started to say miracles in the Bible, but miracles yeah. in general. What probably I, I have a sense that we don't even have a good shared definition of what constitutes mm. a miracle, and maybe that's something to talk about. But yeah, how do you how do you approach that subject? Yeah, I think that's a great place to talk. In fact, just a little background for me. Um, Several years ago, I was writing this book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. And I had worked with my editor to map out seven chapters. And that seventh chapter was going to be, you know, the the answer. And uh, I was in the midst of writing that seventh chapter. And I realized I had not addressed the question of miracles. And that was going to be a question I got from both conservatives and liberals. what about miracles in the Bible today? How do we deal with those kinds of quiet things? And so I decided I would just sort of take a a week or so and look at all of the literature I could find, especially scholarly literature, uh, trying to come to grips on how best to think about miracles, how to define them. And I discovered there is very, very little in the scholarly literature on the question of miracles and how to define them. 
the stuff that I did find fell broadly into three camps. One definition uh, was based primarily on the work of the philosopher David Hume, and it defined miracles as interruptions of the laws of nature. Impositions is the word he would use. That did not seem like a good definition to me on a number of counts. One of them is that it didn't line up with what most people say when they see a miracle or the way the biblical authors talk about miracles. But secondly, it seems to presuppose that there are that nature is kind of a closed system that God has to intervene into. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The second category was mostly Roman Catholic explanations of definitions. And here they like to use the word supernatural a lot. But that is problematic for me in a lot of ways. First of all, um, it again seems to make it the case that somehow the world can work naturally without God's activity. But every once in a while, God has to interject supernaturally, override nature. And that creates all kinds of problems for the problem of evil and what I call the problem of selective miracles. That is, if God occasionally supernaturally intervenes to help somebody out, why doesn't this God do it a whole lot more often? And then this third category of nature or of uh, miracles basically was just relying on the, the, the idea that God controls sometimes. And they were just very explicit. You know, God healed my aunt because God... Uh, um, unilaterally or single-handedly stepped in, fixed it, um, and it wasn't anything I did or the doctors did or there weren't any natural causes contributing. It was all God. All three of those didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me for a, a number of reasons, but let me go back to that selective miracle issue. If some people are healed, then you want to know why a lot more people aren't healed. and. I had prayed for many, many people in my life to get healed, and the percentage that were healed was really low. And those things that they did seem to be healed from were fairly uh, minor things like colds and headaches. Uh, nobody was healed from leukemia from because I prayed. And so I'm thinking, well, if God can single-handedly fix colds, and what's the deal with leukemia? Anyhow, I finally came to think that uh, miracles should have, uh, a definition of miracles should have three aspects. First of all, I think miracles are unusual. In other words, some people will say all of life is a miracle. And I just can't look at the Nazi Holocaust and say, hey, that's a miracle. Uh, also, it's got to be good. And that's why the Nazi Holocaust is a miracle as well. Yeah, it's not a good thing. And then the third one, I wanted to say miracles have some kind of action on God's part, but always in relation to creation. And so the proposal I eventually put on the table says that miracles really do occur, and they do so when creation cooperates or the conditions of creation are conducive to some unusual and good action on God's part. So it isn't an intervention. It isn't a supernatural imposition on God's part in the usual course of affairs, because God's always already working. But in some situations, new possibilities and opportunities arise. God acts and creatures respond, or the conditions of creation are conducive 
for these good and unusual events. I think I'm breaking records in long answers. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Once I get on a roll, I'm in my mind thinking, okay, but then there's this objection they might have and this objection. <laughs> so uh, I've heard you much more long-winded. This is not a <laughs> no, It's good stuff. So the, the three things with respect to miracles were something unusual. Yes. Something we would call good. Yes. And the third one was? Uh, special action on God's part in relation to creation. Relation to creation. Now, I should I should mention the special word because I want to make sure special doesn't mean uh, God, you know, single-handedly did it or God could be doing more, but is most of the time running half speed and every once in a while does something really special when God could always do that. Um, I want the word special in there because I want to avoid... Um, the idea that God is present but not engaging in a give-and-receive relationship. And I think God is engaging, and therefore new things can emerge. And so this special action is special because something, a new possibility is now present in the environment because of what happened in the world and creation, etc., so it's not special in the sense that God is really trying to work sometimes, but not so much other times. God's always, I think, acting to the utmost. But it's special in the sense that there's a new possibility that has emerged in the situation. God seizes upon that and then works to, in cooperation with the, the world. Because he's so creative. He's, he's always working. He never gives up. And love is patient. Right. Exactly. Yep. Love is patient and creative but love is never controlling. So much of this for me, often I, I find that I keep kind of resetting and reframing my view of God with regard to how the Hebrew tradition starts out the sacred text of scripture. And it was remarkable for me a few years ago to discover that the Bible is very ambiguous about ex nihilo, that God created out of nothing. Yeah. I assume that he did, but we actually don't really have evidence. Mm -mm. In, in the beginning, it, it appears what the scriptures say, if I'm reading it correctly, that in the beginning, there was already something going on. Mm. And it was this, uh, what's the Hebrew, to, tovu vabo? Bovu. I always yes, yeah. crush that. Close enough. <laughs> I, have, I have a Jewish friend who will make fun of me for that. Yeah. Actually, I have American friends who make fun of me too. But, <laughs> but if God, so so that helps me. And it kind of, mm. I, I feel like relieves the pressure maybe for us. We don't need necessarily to defend this when the Bible doesn't even necessarily say this. I, I think the Bible is saying God entered into this thing that was formless and void. It was mm -hmm. full of chaos and potential, uh, full of promise, but also uh, this great potential for disaster. Mm -hmm. And He started making stuff in the middle of all of it. Mm -hmm. And He's and that's still going on. I mean, because it's not like it's not like creation right. ended after the proverbial seven days. That's right. Right. Is that so? That's right. That's that that still helps us right now, right? Because in a sense, creation is still happening. 
Yes. Viruses are still happening. The agency, God's, uh, the, the whatever we call God, this thing we use. Yeah. yeah. Aim for this thing that's creative and it's, it's endlessly working on stuff. I don't know. That seems to help me. It helps me too, because uh, rejecting creation out of nothing helps, I think, on two accounts. First of all, it helps because if God can create something out of nothing, then you would think this God would do so in the present to stop a lot more evil. You know, if you, if you were sitting in, in your favorite restaurant having a great meal, and someone comes in with a machine gun and starts freely shooting folks. You have a lot of really morbid. <laughs> you find some more. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, well, I like to use Stump's examples that are extreme because so often in my life, I've heard people talk about evil and use these sort of pansy kind of examples. <laughs> and I just think, come on, let's deal with the really tough let's stuff. Deal with it. You're right, you're right. My bad. <laughs> Anyway, uh, a God who could create something out of nothing and who loves, you would think would instantaneously create steel curtains to block all those bullets. I mean, God could do so without interrupting the free will of the gunman, that we'd just be blocking bullets. Um, So that creates some real problems. Uh, But secondly, if you think God created out of nothing in the first place, then you have reasons to wonder why God didn't do a better job of creating a world that would seem to have a lot less evil in it. Uh, Let me use a nonviolent example. No, actually, this is probably going to be violent as well. (laughs) I've been thinking about this example the last few days, so I'm going to try it out on you. Um, Suppose there's a general or a, a, a builder in your community, a contractor, I'll say a builder, and this builder wants to build a massive playground for uh, his favorite kids or his kids. He just loves his kids. And so starts building this playground and makes it makes it really cool. But in the middle of the playground, builds a merry-go-round and says, okay, kids, you can play wherever you want in this playground, but don't get on the merry-go-round. And they say, okay, well, of course, they do what most kids do, and they end up going on the merry-go-round. And let's say once they hit that merry-go-round, the world or the playground starts to fall apart, and there are jagged edges. There are knives that come up from the concrete. There are, uh, I don't know, all kinds of hazards immediately develop, and the kids are hurt because of them. Now, suppose that contractor could have made the playground with all the, without all those hazards, all the knives, all the, I don't know, I've got to come up with better illustrations here, but I think you get the idea. So if you think God has the capacity to build the perfect world, the perfect playground, but built one that's got so many flaws in it, I mean, it's beautiful, yes, but there's lots of flaws too. You might wonder why God didn't do a much better job in the first place so that we would be able to avoid some of the crap that we deal with in our lives. So that's another reason to reject, uh, in my view at least, to reject creation out of nothing. That's good. The other thing I wanted to acknowledge when you were talking about praying with your friend, Tim, um, the psychosomatic piece of it, 
Mm. And it made me think of uh, the word became flesh mm. and how the words that we speak have effects on people. Mm-hmm. I don't always know exactly how that happens, but I suppose if you speak in a particular way, certain neurochemicals could be released in the brain of the person receiving what you're saying. And those neurochemicals, you know, do something to your body that allow it to move in a particular way. Yeah, I believe in that stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could get really technical on uh, the ontology of my metaphysics, but it, ultimately what I'm affirming is the idea that words affect our ears, that influence our minds. Our minds affect our brains and the chemicals therein, and that then affects our bodies. And so in an interrelated world, words really do matter yeah and i've been thinking lately about like sometimes i feel like well what does it matter if we have bad theology i believe god is love and you know you feel like you're you're banging your head against the wall with certain people i believe god accepts everyone me too but maybe a part of the response to that question is because words do matter. They do affect us in a particular way. And if the word does become flesh, if that's the right way to say it, an unhealthy theology winds up manifesting itself in unhealthy behaviors. I think it can. I mean, I don't want to make the claim that everybody who's got the right theology lives a perfectly loving life, because I can think of exceptions. But I think if we were to look at the general landscape, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> if we were to look at the general landscape, theology is based primarily upon fear of God's judgment. Uh, do not, do not foster healthy people. Um, they don't help the folks think about how they might live life well. They usually are worried about what God's going to do to them. Yes, it has little to do with flourishing and being who they are, who God made them to be. And it has everything to do with limits and boundaries and story of my life. Yeah, well, fortunately, at least in my theology, fortunately, God's love is not predicated or dependent upon us having the right theology. Because I don't think anybody's got the perfect theology, including me. But I do think there are some theologies that are better than others. And I'm striving to have what I think is the most plausible, biblical, loving theology I can come up with. And along the way, I'm going to discard some of my ideas and embrace others. Uh, That doesn't mean any theology is, is the same as others, but it does mean that we don't know everything and we should keep working to understand or know God better. I like it. I like it. And I know you got to go, but I just want to add that, um, and I've told you this before, I don't, I don't think I have like special discernment in this area, but I definitely tend to notice when I'm around people that um, their motive seems to come from a really agitated, unloving place. And so when I hear them talk about love, but it's fraught with frustration and creaky, agitated you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I tend to note that. And I, I really re- appreciate 
having discussions with you and having had the opportunity to hear you speak a couple of times, a couple of weeks ago, because you definitely have that um, sense about you, which I think is worth noting. And that it might feel kind of like, um, I don't know, maybe that's too touchy feely for some people, but I think that that's important. And I think you've probably had to work on that uh, yeah. in your own life. Yeah. I'm still working on it, but you know, um, what I care most about is living a life of love. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about that often, uh, almost daily. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. Or I always do it. But that's my overall goal. It's my aim in life. And um, so I'm constantly asking myself what ideas, what habits what expressions, what ways of being in the world are more loving and which are less loving. And I want to do those things and think those ideas that will help me to love. That's good, man. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you so much for your time again. Yeah, I love it. I'm always open for a good conversation with you. Thank you.